This episode of IDSA's COVID-19 podcast, Recognizing Hispanic Heritage Month, is a re-airing of a panel discussion recorded as part of a cultural awareness series of podcasts under IDSA's cooperative agreement with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thank you for joining us. I'm Salandra Thomas, Vice President of Talent and Organizational Development with IDSA, and I'm pleased to introduce our panel event for September of 2021 for our Cultural Awareness Series, From Action to Change, where we highlight opportunities for us to learn about the history and culture of various communities, the impacts on healthcare, including COVID-19, so that we can take action as allies and change agents to eliminate health disparities and structural inequities. In this month's panel discussion, we're pleased to honor Latinx and Hispanic heritage. Our moderator is Dr. Carlos Del Rio, IDSA Fellow, Executive Associate Dean at Emory School of Medicine and Grady Health System, and Vice President of IDSA's Board of Directors. And now for our discussion. Thank you, Salandra, and really a pleasure to be with such a distinguished panel today. I'm pleased to have uh, joining me today and to discuss about Hispanic Heritage Month and what it means to infectious disease. Uh, first of all, I'll start with Dr. Lilian Abo. Uh, Dr. Abo is professor of infectious diseases at the University of Miami Milner School of Medicine, and she's the chief of infection control and antibiotic stewardship at Jackson Health System. Next, we have Dr. Angelica Cifuentes Kokap, and she's assistant professor of medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and is the associate program director of the Infectious Disease and Immunology Fellowship and is a member of the IDSA Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access Task Force. And finally, we have Dr. Robert Rodriguez. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez is Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and was a member of the Biden-Harris Advisory Team on COVID. Welcome, all of you. And I want to start, first of all, by, by asking, why is celebrating and recognizing Hispanic Heritage Month within the medical community important? It's important to recognize that we have diversity within our community and within infectious diseases and understanding that not all Hispanics are the same, that even within Hispanics, we're all a little bit different and acknowledging those differences and that diversity makes us stronger and can help us provide better care for ID community and for our patients, the patients that we serve. Considering that I am in Miami, we always joke that the good thing about Miami is that we're close to the United States. The first language is Spanish. Uh, so we have a very large Hispanic population and acknowledging that and caring for them is extremely important. You touched on an important topic. So where is your family? Where is your origin from? Well, I am, I am a mix. I'm a Hispanic Jew. So my family is from Venezuela. My dad was actually born in Panama. My grandparents were from Romania and Israel. So I am multicultural, but I, I identify myself as Venezuelan. I am very proud of, of growing up there, of my culture and going through medical school there. And I think that's part of my baggage, my, my genome and, and my phenotype. That sounds good. And Helica, tell us about you. Yeah, I'm originally from Bogota, Colombia. And I did my medical school there. So, and then I came here in 2012. Coming to the U.S. as an adult has been probably a very different experience compared to people that were born here, but from parents from Latin America. As Lillian was saying, we have a lot of diversity between all of us. 
and the experiences that we have, depending on these different background, different stages of life, and when we arrive to the U.S., make us unique, and we can bring a lot of different things to the table. Following with the question that you asked, I feel that we need to give ourselves visibility inside and outside the medical community, because we don't really know how many people we are inspiring by just being present. I like when my patients bring their children, and this is like before COVID, when my patients brought their children to to my consults and I could talk to them in Spanish and they were like, oh, daddy has a Latina doctor. And I really like that because I want them to see that it's possible and that they can one time they can be here as I am. That sounds great. Robert, how about you? I grew up in Brownsville, Texas, which is in La Frontera de, de Mexico, right on the border. My house, I could walk across the river uh, back then to, to to Mexico, to Matamoros. I would echo what Angelica and Lilian said about diversity. It's important to show our young people and everybody that there's diversity in the physician workforce. Growing up, I did not have any uh, Latino role models in medicine. My, my doctor was non-Hispanic white, and throughout my childhood, there was nobody that I could point to who, who was a Latino and a doctor. I think it's critical to serve as role models and to uh, show that Latinos can be physicians, can ascend into any sort of medical pathway career that, that they would like. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree with all of you. Well, since we're talking about ourselves, I was born in Mexico and I went to medical school in Mexico. I like Angelica and Eliana. I came to the United States for as an adult for my residency training. I, I'm Mexican, but I'm also American, and I feel like I have a dual nationality. It enriches my experience to be able to, to have culture and have traditions in both countries. I tell people that when I was young, we would celebrate Thanksgiving at home, which is not a Mexican holiday, but my dad really liked it. And yet we also celebrate here in the U.S. Dia de Muertos, which is a very Mexican holiday. So I think there's that cultural component, but but I do agree that one issue we we have have to acknowledge is Hispanics is now you know one of the fastest growing populations in the U.S. Recent census suggests that about 16% of the population is Hispanic and is growing rapidly. Yet when you look at the data, out of the more than 90,000 students in U.S. medical schools, only 6.6% of them are Latinx, Hispanic. And therefore, we have a huge gap and the population is growing and the Hispanic physicians and, and other healthcare providers to take care of them is not growing as fast. So there's an important role for us to inspire the next generation that everybody has talked about. It's an important role for us to really attract more Hispanics into medicine, into the medical fields. And, and yes, also into infectious disease, because I think, you know, this is what we do. We are in ID and I think we will really doing a, a good service to our community by increasing the number of Hispanics. So how do we advocate to develop a, a more effective and culturally competent uh, doctor-patient relationship? What kinds of things do you think are useful if you are not a Hispanic, but you're taking care of Hispanic patients, which is going to happen because, you know, we have more Hispanic patients that will have Hispanic physicians. What kind of advice can we give people? 
Well, the, the advice I give people who come to work in Florida is try to learn Spanish, right? You're not going to be proficient, but it's always as a patient, you always try to, you, you, you like to communicate in your native language, right? It leads to better communication, whether you're French, Creole, whether you're American or whether you're Hispanic or Arab, speaking to someone in your language creates more confidence, more, more trust. Understand the cultural differences and understand that the fact that somebody tells me, oh, you speak Spanish, I've been to Argentina. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know where Venezuela is located in the map. So know your geography and understand that Latin America is very vast. It's, a, it's an entire, you know, we have Central, South America and North America. And there's some cultural differences between Mexico and Venezuela, even though we're all Hispanic. Understanding the differences in culture, con that connection, I think, builds, builds a little more, more trust. Understanding that Hispanics there are different levels of culture and knowledge, and you need to acknowledge that you're going to have very highly educated Hispanics, and you're going to have people who are farmers who have not had the opportunity to enter elementary, understand that cultural differences, we're all not the same. And then the other part is Hispanics, we're very family oriented. We like to bring our children to our console, the grandma, the neighbor, everybody is part of your family. Your friends are also part of your family. In my family in, in Venezuela, when somebody would be sick, you have 20 people at the hospital. Now with COVID, we don't have visitations, but that's very, very Hispanic. So I think acknowledging that and understanding those things will make that patient doctor interaction better and building trust. I think that's very important in the Hispanic culture, the trust in the doctor and the respect that, that still exists. To speak Spanish to, to your patients is, is extremely helpful. I, I work pre predominantly in the emergency department and in the intensive care units. And when my patients, my Latino patients, Spanish speaking patients, see that I can communicate with them in Spanish, it's, you know, it, it breaks a huge barrier. I, the point of speaking Spanish, I agree, is excellent. Uh, but even if if the person that is trying to communicate doesn't really speak Spanish, but the fact that the person is interested and is trying, even if you know you you know one or two words, that shows empathy. And I feel that we as Hispanics feel very happy when somebody is trying because that shows that the person has a real interest in connecting with us. After that, if the communication is not the best because of the language barrier, then using translators and things like that, we have to do that. And uh, But just showing that, that step that they really tried and that they are showing that they are trying to at least say hola or something like that, that really breaks the ice and it means a lot. Yeah, no, I, I I totally agree. I think the other thing that I would add is that that we, uh, you know, again, there's a lot of cultural differences, but I would say in general, not only are we Hispanics very like to have you know families and 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 many people involved, but we're also I would say very physical, right? We like hugging. We like uh, you know. I remember when I practiced in Mexico, and uh, you know, I, I I was eight years in Mexico and practice in the early years of the HIV epidemic when there was really not much to do for our patients. I mean, the, the only drugs available were AZT basically, and then later on DDI and DDC. I mean, really not much to do. I had, you know, I remember one time a patient who was a very advanced HIV. And, you know, I said, why are you still coming to see me in the office? I, I can go see you at home. Or, you know, why are you still making the trip for me to, to, to come to the office? I'm not, I don't feel like I'm doing much for you. And he said, you know, I just come because you give me a hug when I come in. He, he, he thought that that was the medicine that he was getting from me. The fact he was getting empathy, he was getting a hug. 
he was getting encouragement. And that's also an, an important part, right, that, that we, we need to acknowledge in our culture that that's, that's part of who we are. And, and many patients want that. You know, they want a personal relationship with their, with their provider. What changes have you seen throughout your career regarding the advancement and opportunities for, for Latins in, in, as healthcare providers? I wanted to highlight one big change that I, I saw, especially this past year through the pandemic, and it was the increased attention of reporting demographic data. And I know this could be something so simple and maybe many of us are like, oh, that exists. Well, the fact that we're doing that more consistently increases our visibility. It helps us to identify the issue to label the issue and to propose and plan for solutions, to think about budgets that are needed. Because when you have a real number and you can see numbers, how big the problem is, and I'm talking about in the context of COVID, that increases our visibility and the needs that we have. It addresses the abysmal disproportion in healthcare and the systemic and structural inequities that we have in our system and that we unfortunately had to see through all this pandemic. Um, but uh, I see that there is a good future. I, you know, I've seen through my career already the increased uh, number of medical students, residents, and even fellows that are coming from Latin American backgrounds. And I think that's great. We need to continue doing that. I know the IDSA has initiatives that focus on efforts that are targeting medical students of diverse backgrounds, including Hispanics. So I feel that all these efforts and the earlier that we can start to increase, you know, like more students and more people in the medical field from our background, that will be very, very good. My career is a little bit longer than Angelica's, I imagine. And what I've seen over the years is that back when I was training a resident in my early faculty years, there, there was a dearth there just was, wasn't a much of a Latino presence in academic medicine. There also just weren't, weren't that many Latino doctors and, and other healthcare providers. I can recall times working in L.A. during my residency. L.A. is a very Latino city, yet I was, you know, one of only two Latino residents in that community or at my residency. We have made some progress now that there, there, there are more Latino doctors and, and trainees in, in, in medicine, but there's still, as, as you mentioned, Dr. Del Rio, there uh, still is a, a gap in terms of the population, the Latino population and uh, the percentage of, of doctors and and especially doctors who are in academic medicine. So we have a ways to go. The diversity efforts that uh, Angelica mentioned, that they are impro improving things, but we still have a, a, a long way to go. Yeah, I agree. Uh, how about Lilian? I've seen different things in the last 20 years. I think one from going from uh, recognition that Hispanics coming from Latin America 
and, and Spain can bring a lot to the U.S. health system and STEM careers. So, you know, incorporating more Hispanics into our residency trainings has been a, a change. I think medical school, increasing the visibility, whether you are born from foreign parents or you're born in a foreign country, I think that that has been progress. I see more Spanish being spoken in the streets in many cities in the U.S. where before you would rarely see that. And, and Hispanics are going in different areas of labor from serving tables to corporate. I also think that with global health and globalization, we've seen with the pandemic sharing of information. And it has been so important not only to understand you know, uh, the, the differences that we have seen uh, that Angelica very nicely summarized, but also how if we cannot control the pandemic in other parts of the world, these variants are gonna spread rapidly. Right now we're dealing with Delta, right? That came from India, but we're also seeing you know, Lambda and other strains that are circulating in other parts of the world that are especially in Latin America. If we cannot control the pandemic, if we cannot control the infrastructure in healthcare and bring value, uh, that also comes to the United States. We, you know, there is a global world, there is immigration and there is, you know, travel. So I, I do think uh, more than ever, it's very important to under acknowledge that. In IDSA specifically, I've seen the evolution when I when I started as a as a young resident in my fellowship and and seeing the IDSA boards I I would have never dreamed to be part of the IDSA board of directors and now several of us now in the board are women and are Hispanic too uh, so I think that it, in itself to me it's great progress that maybe 10 15 years ago I would have never dreamed about it I would say I was you know, I have the wrong color, I have the wrong last name, and that's never going to be an opportunity for me. And I am very grateful for that. I'm honored to be able to serve our diverse community and the fact that IDSA is making the effort to be inclusive in all ranks from residency, med students to, to their board. I think about, I mean, there's a lot of people, but I'm going to mention four that I think about. One is Dr. Antonio Novello, who became the first Hispanic Surgeon General who also was a woman, but in 1990 became Surgeon General of the United States. I think about my good friend, uh, Nora Volko, who, you know, is, is in, in 2003 was appointed director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And, you know, she's originally from Mexico and somebody that I've known since we were, we were kids. And then, you know, Dr. Jaime Sepulveda, who's at, at San Francisco, who is a director of the Global Health Institute at, at UCSF. And finally, I have to mention my good friend, uh, Julio Frank, who's the president of University of Miami. I mean, those are, those are four people that I think that are in, in big leadership positions and who are Hispanic. And I think, you know, are really role models for many of us who aspire to, to, to continue that and to see more Hispanics in leadership positions. So I'm really pleased that, you know, that you are now in the IDSA board and that, uh, you know, we hope to have Angelica and others uh, join us in the future because IDSA has really created a pathway and it's a commitment to inclusion, diversity, equity that I think is really transforming our leadership in the ID community. I mean, I remember in the early years of, of me being an ID fellow going to, it was ICAC by then, and then we had the ID, IDSA meeting was two days either before or after ICAC, you had to be invited. And it was just you know, the people in the, in the podium were all white, all white men and all white men. And you rarely saw a woman and you rarely saw anybody else. And, and that has changed. And that has changed because there's been really a commitment of the board of directors to make a change and to make the board and to make the leadership reflect more, you know, who we are and how the, how the profession is changing. And that, I think it's a, it's really very, very important for everybody. So, uh, what would you like to see more in the future? What, what, I mean, have we reached everything or what, what other things do we need in the future? 
Well, I think in the future we need to continue our efforts, right? It's it's first make sure that the population that we serve is we're honoring them, that we are truly representing their needs, that we continue to advance the society, and that we are inclusive. To, that we have differences of an, of opinion, but we agree to disagree sometimes, and and understand that what we want to do is ultimately is serve our patients and provide the best care we can. We need to continue advancing science. We've seen with this pandemic, the recognition that infectious disease physicians finally have. I think for the first time in decades, people no longer ask me what I do. People already know what I do. And I'm proud to say I'm an ID doctor and people actually thank me. Before it would be like, what do ID people actually do? So I think we need to continue to prepare for other pandemics. We need to continue to emphasize global health. Uh, we need to continue advancing the, the, the care for Hispanics, for uh, the cultural differences that we have, the, the vast knowledge that we have about tropical medicine, because we, we grew up in medical school seeing malaria and dengue, and uh, the clinical acumen that we bring. Many of us trained in, in medical schools where we didn't have CAT scans. We just had to examine the patient and get a good history. And you would go to the lab and look at the smear. I, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that with technology. And I think we need to continue to emphasize that what we learn in, in Latin America, it's very valuable for American medicine and, and can improve care for patients and decrease the cost because we're spending 18% of our GDP in healthcare. So I think if we want to grow old and be able to have social security and Medicare, we, we really need to reduce the cost and provide better care. How about Angelica? You're young. What do you want to see in the future? I want to see more people in my field. I want to see more medical students getting into medical school. And I think for me, investing in youth, it's super important. So I would like to see more investment in that population, making medical school something that is accessible. I am very proud of being where I am right now in, in the institution that I work. We are probably one of the very few or maybe the only institution that has free tuition to medical students. And I think that's extremely important because we need to create that opportunity for them. Medicine in the US and in many other countries continues to be a privileged area where you can go if your parents can pay for your university or you can get into those loans. So I think that investing at that entry level is critical because like right now we see like we do interviews for fellowship, for residency, and then you wonder what is the diversity? Why we only get like five Latino applicants, two black applicants, like where are they? Well, they are not in medical school because we're not giving them that opportunity. So I want, and I wanna see more medical students and more kids from diverse backgrounds and, and more uh, poor areas joining us. Roberto, what do you wanna see? What, what's the future like? We have made progress in terms of Latinos in medicine and in, you know, in, on, at all levels. But it's we still, as I mentioned before, and as others mentioned before, we have a long way to go. I still feel a, this may be a strong word, but a, a bit of a stigma, being a Latino in medicine and, and uh, you know, a, a stigma, some of our patients, especially our immigrant populations are uh, feel stigmatized. And so a lot of my work is centered on undocumented immigrants and care for them, improving their, their healthcare access. And I'd like to see Latinos destigmatized and, and 
that starts with us, you know, starting to, to, to make sure that we are sensitive to our patients' needs and sensitive to our students' students' needs. Again, while we've made some progress, I still think we have a ways to go. And I'd like to see the unconscious bias against Latino doctors. I'd like to see that uh, erased. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think all of us uh, have, to a lesser or greater extent, uh, suffered from you know the stigma and discrimination that you're talking about. And uh, I always tell when I have uh, uh, residents or students that are you know from Latin America or Hispanics, I always say, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard to prove you're just as good. And uh, because you you start from 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 being being looked at that way. But, but I do think also that we have a, another role that I think as we try to transform the future, it's a very important role for us to advocate, right, for, for, for that ju- social justice, for that equity, for those, all those things that we aspire. And I think those of us that have achieved, you know, an education and we are in leadership positions in our institutions, we, we have to be advocates. We have to be at the table talking about these issues, because if you don't, then nobody thinks about them, and, and we need to continuously be be bringing this up, and we need to continue being continue to be voices that advocate for for changing uh, this because it's not going to change if, if we don't if we don't take take it into our hands. Well, you know, one of the things that has been uh, terrible in this this pandemic was has been the 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 important uh, impact it has had in many minority communities, but including the Hispanic community, and I want to concentrate just now on the impact that the pandemic has had in the Hispanic community. And, and hear a little bit about, you know, sort of your personal experience as providers, as physicians, and, and how did you, what, what, what things struck you about the, the disproportionate impact of Hispanics during this COVID pandemic? As mentioned before, I'm an emergency medicine and, and, and critical care doc. Um, I practice in San Francisco at, at the County Hospital, San, uh, San Francisco General. There, it, it, in San Francisco, during the early phases of the pandemic and really throughout the pandemic, while only 15, 15 1.5% of the population in San Francisco is Latino, over at the, at the start of the pandemic, about 75% of cases of COVID were in, in Latinos. And, and that has decreased somewhat, but it's still over half of the cases that we've seen have been in, in Latinos. And um, so that's, there's obviously a huge discrepancy there. As I mentioned before, I, I grew up in Brownsville, te- Texas, and um, I traveled down there last summer to help with a, a, a surge in the pandemic um, and worked in, in, a, in the ICU there in, in, in Brownsville where Brownsville is 90 plus percent uh, Mexican-American predominantly. And their hospital there was just overrun with COVID cases. We had about 180 patients in the hospital, 60, 60 of them requiring ICU level of care and uh, this was in a, a rather under-resourced hospital. So the pandemic has un- undeniably had a disproportionate effect on Latino communities. The numbers are, are staggering in terms of 
of loss of life and cases. Um, they have, they've had approximately double the mortality of non-Hispanic communities. And it's just been, it's just ravaged those communities. I, you know, I saw my hometown become just ravaged by, by COVID. And so really it, it, it's the defining illness of, of this generation uh, and especially so for Latino communities. From my own experience uh, here in New York, so it was extremely painful to see that first wave. Uh, our first wave was um, basically and essentially just Hispanics. It was extremely sad to see this happening. The, the highest numbers of COVID cases were coming from an area in Queens where there is a huge Latin population. And uh, it was extremely sad to learn that may, many, many patients and many uh, of the kids that uh, go to some public schools in that area had lost one or the two parents due to COVID. So I'm just thinking what's gonna be of that generation that had such losses like what's gonna happen with these kids and uh that's everything that i was just thinking when this happened in new york city in our city and i think this number probably relates uh, to many other areas in the u.s three quarters of the, of the front line essential workers are people of color most of them are from a latin american origin. And just the fact that that goes tied to immigration uh, conditions that made, you know, the pandemic even more tragic for some families that they couldn't stop working. They needed to continue working because if they, they stopped working, they couldn't pay the rent. They didn't get uh, help from uh, agencies or the government because of their immigration status. So I feel that uh, our community was hit in so many ways from so many fronts. And it was very sad to see that most of the cases through the pandemic were actually our Latino or Hispanic patients. I have similar experiences. I'm in Miami. I am in the largest health county system uh, where we have four acute care hospitals, mental health. I also have I'm under infection control. I oversee four of the Miami-Dade County jails. And the largest group, ethnic groups in, in, in Miami, I would say are also Hispanics. And yes, they were disproportionately affected. Many reasons, the same as, as you saw in Texas and in, and in New York and in San Francisco, um, frontline workers living in multi, multicultural houses. And they were living, um, you know, family units where you have grandparents taking care of the grandkids while the parents went to work. And unfortunately, the, the, you know, one of the parents came sick and infected the entire household. So at some point we had grandparents dying with parents in the ICU and a child that had autism alone at home and social services had to intervene. So we saw many of those sad stories and in different zip codes of our county. Uh, we also have Hispanics with high income and high access to care who also were falling sick to COVID. Some of them initially in the first wave were traveling to Europe and other places. So it had to, it not, it not only had to do with access to care, it had to do with, for different reasons, our community was, was impacted. We also have seen vaccine hesitation in Hispanics, and a lot of our work here in South Florida has been giving the education and removing those myths. As, as I don't know if you've seen the literature, but there are 12 influencers who have actually spread all this misinformation uh, around the globe. And uh, many of these TikToks and videos are also in Spanish, 
spreading you know uh, misinformation about fertility and the chips and don't get vaccinated so we have done a lot of ground grassroots uh, interventions in spanish educating people globally and educating people locally about the safety of the vaccines and masking and any infection precautions. So I think uh, there are definitely opportunities to, to continue that. And, and the more workforce we have that speaks Spanish that people can trust and can relate to, I think the stronger we can be in controlling the pandemic. Yeah, I think you moved into a very important topic, which is, is that of, of, of going forward, right? Is the issue of vaccination and how do we how do we address the 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 vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing? still, despite all the efforts that we're all making, Hispanics are lagging behind in in COVID vaccination uptake. And and what else can we do? I mean, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, for example, is that uh, media coverage and media in Spanish and is still uh, pretty limited compared to other media around the importance of vaccines. I think you know the other day. I was talking to somebody who is uh, Hispanic and undocumented, and he went to try to get a vaccine. But when he had to fill a form and he, he there was a place to put your social security number, he didn't have one. So so he he left the place. I mean, nobody said you don't need to put, put that's just there, but you don't need to put your social security number. A lot of people worry that, you know, if you get the vaccine, the government will know who you are and they'll come to get you. So I think there's, there's it's a lot of hesitancy, but a lot of it is, has to do more with hesitancy about the system, with with this this distrust of the system, with not knowing how to navigate the system, and therefore it's urgent that we we work more with communities and with trusted community leaders and trusted organizations to really try to get vaccines out there. And yes, the component that you mentioned, Liliana, about misinformation is huge. You no, know, I mean the number of times I've had to answer the question about does it impact your fertility is and and it's it's just incredible and you know. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a piece of misinformation that I feel like, like, I don't know what we say, but the moment, you know, you repeat it and then they, two weeks, two days later, the same person comes with, I re just read something that reinforces what they had, they thought was there and they continue asking the question. It's just hard to move in that direction. But I think that an important component is, again, going back to how do we use our strengths? What kind of things, what are the relevant things that we can do in, in caring for patients and in also addressing that. And I could tell you that, for example, right now during the Delta wave, as we're seeing still many hospitalized, I've used the opportunity to tell them, okay, now it's time, you know, to get everybody else in your family vaccinated to prevent others from. So I think we really need to use that, that opportunity to use that family power to then get everybody in the family vaccinated because there is an opportunity to actually use the family unit as, okay, now that this person has sick, how do we, how do we, uh, how do we address the entire family unit? But is there other things that you would say you would recommend our colleagues to do when caring for, for Latino patients with COVID or how to deal with the community around COVID? Uh, the fact that we are going through our fifth wave with Delta, uh, as many of you know, South Florida has been hit really hard. We're seeing almost the same numbers that we saw last summer when we the rest of the country was doing fine. I predict that the rest of the country will see what we're seeing now early in the in the fall and winter. The fact that we cannot have family members visiting again, the fact that we have to communicate on the phone, keep those families informed of what's happening. We need to do more media coverage. If you get asked to be on media in Spanish, please do it. Please continue to educate and you know and and every opportunity 
opportunity to partner with local churches, with immigration agencies. I think we need to do that and do these community events, pop-up events with vaccinations. Right now, you don't need appointments. Now we have a surplus of vaccines. And the, and the, the one one thing that I use constantly here locally with our media is many of our loved ones are in Latin America. People are paying up to $1,000 to get a vaccine. They cannot get access to the vaccines. They're getting vaccines from Russia, from China, who, who knows what, what cold chain they had, who knows if they're really getting placebo or a real vaccine. People are begging to come to the US and getting vaccines. Here we have them for free. We have a health system that may not be perfect, but works. You can walk into any community pharmacy and get vaccinated. So I tell people, honor the country that is giving you the opportunity to be here and work here and do your part in public health and get vaccinated. I think that needs to continue to be our message to the Hispanic population. We need to be grateful that the United States opened their door for us and we need to pay that back. I like that. Angelica? I like that too. I, I feel that it's such a powerful message. I feel that our uh, Latin community, it's very receptive to messages that are family oriented. So I feel that as we reinforce that information saying that uh, this is something that is, is gonna be good for you, for your family members or those family members that haven't, have been vaccinated already, if they can share their experience because many times is that fear of like, oh, I don't know if I'm gonna get it and something is gonna happen to me right away. So when they hear from somebody that they trust in their family that received the vaccine and did, and did okay, I think that's uh, an important information that they should be sharing with family and friends. And, uh, and highlight the, the fact that we are in a country that is giving us a lot of things, including vaccines, and we have the privilege. For one time, we have a privilege, right, that is equally for all of us. So we need to take advantage of that and, and honor that, as, as Lillian was saying. The language barrier is something that we have to continue working on, uh, even like in clinical trials, just as an example, we have been working really hard on doing these clinical trials and trying to get people participating. And then you find out that there are no materials in Spanish. And so what is the compromise? I feel that we need to advocate for our Hispanic patients and to make sure there is information available to them in the language that they, that they are able to understand. And that's something that we have to continue advocating for, for, for them. Um, understanding the differences uh, of our diverse Hispanic population. There are some uh, a small population that have perhaps some uh, beliefs in a different type of medicine, not necessarily the medicine that we have. And uh, this is something that I have encountered with some indigenous populations from Latin America. And so it's validate, we have to validate those beliefs and honor also that culture that they have, but also make them uh, understand that this is not a choice of A or B, that they can have the vaccine and still believe in the things that they believe traditionally. So is that empathy of accepting that there is something else, but presenting what we know works? Yeah, but I, I have to say that we don't want anybody to be using ivermectin. And, and in Latin America, there's so much ivermectin used that this is really an important message because I'm hearing that there's so much ivermectin being prescribed in Latin America that people here, Hispanics are hearing, this is what they're getting in Latin America. And I think we also need to get that message strongly out there Absolutely. about the lack of value and the toxicity of, of ivermectin, because it's very common in the Hispanic population to see its use. 
Absolutely. And I think IDSA has done a great job with the guidelines. I think we need to translate them in Spanish and share them more in Latin America. It's really like, like you're saying, one of those myths has been our own medical community that caused this harm and prescribing this drug in South, in, in, I think Central and South America. So, Roberto, anything to add? Yeah, I would add that there's a somewhat hidden population um, that is not reached by traditional avenues of, of outreach. Uh, patients that don't have a primary doctor, that don't, you know, have access to internet and, and TV, and that is a, a population, underserved population whose only healthcare access occurs in emergency departments. We studied that group at, at 15 emergency departments across the country and found that there's an increased prevalence of vaccine hesitancy in this group. And so we have a grant, an NIAID grant now, targeting uh, messaging and vaccine delivery to, to that group, that underserved group that you're not going to get in a family practice clinic or a general clinic. Um, you're only going to get them through, through the emergency department. So we have a, a, a grant looking at in decreasing their hesitancy and increasing their vaccine uptake in, in that group. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's as much as about 15% of the, of the population. And this group is uh, largely uh, Latino and many undocumented Im immigrants in that group. And they, uh, as we said before, have had a, a disproportionate effect of the pandemic on, on those groups, especially. So uh, I would add that outreach needs to be creative and needs to go to other places that you, you traditionally have, have not thought of, of providing vaccines and public health, like the emergency department. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. In, in our ER now, we're vaccinating people in the ER and we're also using monoclonals and we're doing a lot of things that initially the, the ER said, look, this is, we're not set up for this, but they clearly figured out how to be set up so they can actually do it. And I think it's a very important part. I'm gonna say that, you know, when I was in Mexico, uh, the then um, Secretary of Health in Mexico was a pediatric infectious disease doctor. His name was Dr. Jesus Cumate. And this is when Mexico really made a commitment to universal vaccination of children. And we, we did an incredible campaign and got kids, you know, over 95% immunized against childhood diseases. But, but Dr. Cumate said something that I really loved. And he said, you know, that in a country with enormous inequalities, he was given the opportunity to provide all kids immunological equity. They were going to be able to fight all infectious diseases the same way, whether they were poor or rich, you know, and, and, and I think I tell that to my Hispanic patients is that in a country where there's a lot of inequalities and where you may be, you know, under many problems and you have, you know, bad housing and poor job and, and poor services, by getting the vaccine, you're protecting yourself. You're, we're providing you the immunological equity. So you will be just as protected as the richest person in this country by that vaccine. And I think it's an opportunity to promote equity. And I look at vaccination as an, as an ability to provide that immunological equity, which is, is a concept I really, really like. I'm going to steal that quote. I love I it. Know. <laughs> I, you should. I think we as infectious physicians need to talk about equity. And I think giving immunological equity is something we can do with vaccines, right? 
So, so, so some of that also applies to our healthcare workers. And, and I don't know how high is the percent vaccination, but our workforce is Hispanic oh. and African-American. So we are, we just mandated it. I yesterday had to meet with our union and I used a similar term to that, right? This is giving us the opportunity. It's like you're, you fell off a cliff and we're throwing a rope at you. And this vaccine is your lifesaver. And, and we're giving the opportunity to save your life in an equitable way. It's the same vaccine for everyone, whether you're rich, poor, black or white, we're all getting the same dose, the same vaccine from the same vial. Uh, but I love that. The and, 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 and you're all going to get the same level of protection because what we Absolutely. saw in the clinical trials is that there was no difference, right? The level of protection is the same. In the clinical trials, the diversity in the clinical trials showed us that there's no difference. And I think that's so important that I don't care who you are, you will get the same level of protection. So, you know, we're almost over an hour so. I would like to have each one of you just give me some closing comments and, and maybe you can say something in Spanish. The only Spanish thing I'd, I'd like to say is si se puede. I think we need to continue to mentor and, and promote the, the careers of, of uh, young aspiring doctors. And it's the only way to get uh, better, better treatment for Latino populations is to have an educated Latino workforce who can understand their needs. You know, I'm, I'm grateful to be on this panel with the, with the three of you and, and um, si se puede. Gracias otra vez por la invitación y qué alegría y qué delicia hablar español. Pero cambiemos inglés. Entonces, I am very happy that uh, I was invited to this conversation. And uh, one important message is that this is a good opportunity celebrating the Hispanic Heritage Month. It's a good opportunity to highlight our rich culture. And uh, learning about us is important uh, because educating yourself about the contributions that have been made by different groups of people is an important first step to create a society that is built on mutual, mutual respect and admiration for different uh, races, ethnicities, religions, sexual orientation, and more. So I think this is a great time to uh, advocate and celebrate our difference. Lilian? Bueno, primero, gracias. Eh, ha sido un honor poder estar con todos ustedes, eh, compartir esta conversación. I also want to thank the IDSA Foundation and IDSA for, for setting the platform and giving the relevance to, to this conversation and to Hispanic Heritage Month. I'm very grateful. We've all been through this pandemic. We're burned out. There is an effort to continue to be compassionate, to care when we are, you know, we're all going on that extra battery that we had. And this is still going to last several more months. So I'm going to say in Spanish, or we say in Venezuela, es pa'lante, para atrás, ni para coger impulso. And we all need to keep going and moving forward and understand that we've come a very long way to be where we are. There's still a lot to be done, but oh, animo. And like all of you said, si se puede, and we're going to beat this pandemic and be stronger together. So thank you. Well, thanks, everybody. So I'll just say, I'll say that, you know, I have this little button that was made by my healthcare system that I worry when I, I worry when I go on the wards and it says, yo ya me vacuné, pregúntame. And it's again, because I speak Spanish, when I want workers that are there that, that speak Spanish feel comfortable coming to me and ask me about, about the vaccination. It's amazing how much people have come up and say, to tell me about the vaccine. So again, really make, make an effort to, to use our, you know, our gift of, of being from another culture to really uh, improve the, uh, uh, create you know, health equity and improve the lives of Hispanics. Uh, 
making more Hispanics come into medicine. I think it's something that I personally am very committed to. I, I am, uh, you know, work work very hard for that, and I think we all do. And again, I think we want infectious disease to have a diverse community, and having Hispanics be, you know, as speakers, as leaders, uh, as is as as decision makers. I think is really uh, a critical component, and I think that you know IDSA is leading the way in really transforming how you know how our society better represents its members and how increasing proportion of its members being Hispanics are are being part of. I mean, you are being welcome into 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 the society, into the organization. So I would ask all of you to to continue doing what you're doing. You are, you are great leaders in our, in our community and, and we're all very proud to have you as, as members of IDSA. So, muchas gracias y buenas tardes. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.